And so today we're going to make our way through Judges chapter 4 and 5. So we'll be in both of those, and, and so you'll see a large 4, a large 5, and then the small verse numbers in there as well. But before we get started, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we so desperately need you. And yet we know that we have you. So would you glorify yourself in our hearts, in our church, in our minds, through your word. And may you care for your people through your word. May you draw people to yourself through your word. And may you act mightily through your word. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a young kid, probably six or seven years old, I found some uh, family tree-like books at my grandparents' house. And so I started looking through them, and my grandmother's maiden name is Key, K-E-Y. And I saw a reference to Francis Scott Key in there. And so I thought, oh, okay, you know, famous heritage there. All right, for those of you that don't know, Francis Scott Key wrote the Star-Spangled Banner. Um, but anyway, so, so I've, for 20-something years, uh, thought that I was a descendant of Francis Scott Key. Uh, so my grandparents, fast forward, about two years ago, they were moving out of their house, and my mom was uh, helping them out, and she was on the phone with me, and I said, Mom, get the family tree book. I, I, I want that. I called dibs on that one. And so she uh, grabbed it, and she took it home, and then whenever uh, Amanda and I were at my parents' house over the holidays, I got the book, and I started looking through it and just wanted to see it again. And I saw all the lineage and all the generations in my grandmother's like, side of the Key family. And where I saw Francis Scott was in another group of just of other people that just happened to have the same last name. So my heart sank as I realized that I'm probably for all intents and purposes, have a better chance of being related to Ronald McDonald than I do to Francis Scott Key. But if you think of, if you think of Francis Scott Key, you think Star Spangled Banner. And if you're familiar with it, it was written on September 14, 1814. He wrote it after watching a, a battle at, uh, in Baltimore at Fort McHenry. And what was happening in this battle is the British forces were just bombarding the fort, bombarding the fort, bombs bursting, uh, everything happening, and this flag, this American flag just stood there uh, flying amidst everything going on. And then morning came, and there was the flag still flying. And so he wrote what originally was a poem, and what in uh, about 100 years later became our national anthem. And he wrote of that event, the rocket's red glare gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. And it's unique because that is a song that tells the story of an event. And this morning in Judges 4 and 5, we're going to see on an even more incredible level a story, and then we're going to see it recounted in a song in chapter 5. And this tells of a victory for the Israelites through the work of their God. And it also tells of how he brings us into this very work and connects us with this story. So this morning as we walk through it in chapter 4 in the story, we're going to see a miserable state that they were in and then we're going to see a merciful salvation 
that, that they had. And then we're going to see it recounted through a magnificent song. Now, I'm going to begin reading chapter 4, and I'm going to make my way all the way through it. Uh, so I encourage you to follow along. It's a little bit grisly, uh, but follow along, lock in, and let's do this. Chapter 4, verse 1. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of, wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaananim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera. And said to him, Come, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, Ever's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin the Canaanite king before the Israelites, And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin the Canaanite king until 
they destroyed him. A miserable state, a merciful salvation, and a magnificent song. First, the miserable state the people of Israel are in. If you look at verses 1 through 3, it says in verse 1, After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this led to them ultimately being sold into the hand of the Canaanites, and they were oppressed, and it says cruelly, for 20 years. They've had oppression earlier and at other times in the book of Judges, but this is the first time it's said that the oppression, that the the slavery, the treatment was cruel that they were receiving at the hands of the Canaanites. And I want to lay before you that their spiritual decay ultimately led to their physical bondage. And think of, the, think of it like this. Spiritual decay led to physical bondage. Think of, think of this idea. Theology leads to biography. What I believe shapes the direction, shapes my life, shapes the direction that I go in. And so, um, illustrated with the Israelites, they forgot their God in pursuit of empty gods, and, and this led to their physical and, and, and their spiritual and physical destruction. Now, this is not some form of teaching. Theology doesn't lead to biography in that, okay, if you, if you are faithful to God, I'm not saying that if you're faithful to God, everything's going to go right and everything's going to be fine and everything's going to be smooth sailing. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying and what I'm pointing out in this text is that which you give your heart to ultimately gets control of you. See, the Israelites had started to kind of mingle their worship of the God who had redeemed them out of Egypt, and they had mingled it with the worship of the gods of the Canaanites, and these gods took control, the Canaanite people took control, and the Israelites got far more than they bargained for. You see, for the Christian, we can compare this passage to our growth as followers of Christ. So I've repented of my sin, I've placed faith in Christ for salvation, and my task, my growth is found in keeping my eyes on on my Redeemer, keeping my eyes upon the Christ who went to the cross, who rose again. And my eyes are still prone to to lure and to, to be given to false gods. And all of ours are. And our task and our responsibility is to keep our eyes anchored upon Christ and to see the warning in Israel and that they did not keep their eyes upon their Redeemer. See, our disobedience towards our God says something about what we believe about our God. Does it not? And I think oftentimes our disobedience says that our God is not totally sufficient in his care for us. We don't believe that. You see, maybe you fudge a little on taxes because you ultimately don't believe that God can provide for you and your family. Maybe you gossip or or say things that are unhelpful about an adversary or somebody around you or a classmate in school because you don't trust God, that he's perfect in his wisdom and even in his justice and his love for his children. We oftentimes can act out in little sin that can, that can we think is little, but bl- balloons and catches fire and leads to cruel oppression and us looking around and saying, where am I? You see, I want you to notice something up to this point. I want you to think everywhere that we, as we've walked through the book of Judges, every, everything that we've seen, think with me on this. Up to this point in Judges, we have not seen any reference in the priest or to the priest or the spiritual leadership of Israel. They're MIA. We have no reference to them up to this point. And 
the, the, the thing that we see as, as we see the book unfold further is that they're absent in their spiritual leadership, and this leads to the decline and the decay of the people. People of God, the people of God, whether it be the people of Israel here or the church here today, we need the spiritual leaders that God has given to us to point us to our Redeemer and point us to his word that he has given us. And so let me ask you this question. How often do you pray for your pastors and elders? How often do you pray that we would maintain a magnificent view of God whereby we are awestruck before him and don't begin to think in our own wisdom, in our own minds, that our church needs anything other than his word to sustain us? You see, I I, I suspect that the decline of the people of Israel did not happen overnight. But the leaders slowly, slowly, slowly veered off the path. And I know my heart can be prone to veer off the path as well and to take my eyes off the Redeemer. Brothers and sisters, please pray for your pastors, your staff, and your elders. So there's a miserable state. Next, we'll see a merciful salvation. The Israelites are being cruelly oppressed at the hands of the Canaanites. And now read on with me in verses uh, 4 through 7. Deborah, this prophetess, the wife wife of Lapidoth, She's leading Israel at this time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. So Deborah is actually more of a judge than, than some of the other ju- judges that we picture, than some of the other judges that we've seen up to this point and we'll see further going in the book of Judges. She's, she's not a militaristic conqueror. She's, she's actually judging disputes. People are coming to her, and, and, and she's... Uh, caring for them and and using her wisdom to mediate disputes and and to to care for the people of Israel. But now look at what happens here. In verse 6, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. So much leadership in Israel was a wreck. But look at the gift to the Israelites that Deborah was. She was a judge who used her wisdom for the glory of God and for the good of, her, good of his people. She was one who her theology was still, she believed it could still shape the biography of, of the direction the people of Israel went. Because she did not have this diminished view of God. She had a magnificent view of God and his grace and his power on behalf of his people. You know, one thing about Deborah is that she arose in a chaotic time. She arose in a time when Israel was in a mess, and she could have looked around and said, you know, priests aren't doing their jobs. Uh, Barak's not even around. I don't know where the military is. They're not doing their jobs. Why should I do mine? You know, she could have, she could have made that excuse. But Deborah, Deborah realized, and, and, and we ought to realize as well in our lives as we grow as followers of Christ, that we don't choose the days in which we live or in some cases even the places in which we live, but we choose whether or not we will be faithful to God in those days and in those places. And that's the principle that we see here from Deborah and her stepping up for the good of the people of Israel. Now you see Barak in verses 6 and 7. Deborah, look at verse 6. She sent for Barak. Barak's nowhere around. And you know the funny thing is that in Hebrew, the name Barak means lightning. But all throughout this chapter, he's late everywhere he goes. And so... Barak, Barak means lightning. And in any way, he's a, he's, a, he's a microcosm of the state of leadership in Israel before, Derek, uh, before Deborah. 
You see, look at Barak. He needed himself to be reminded of the, of the goodness of God and the provision of God for his people. When Deborah tells him, look at, look at what he says to her in verse 8. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And then Deborah said, I will go with you. And then jump down to verse 12. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River. And then listen to Deborah again encouraging, again spurring Barak on. Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Look at what she did. She, she, in, in this exhortation, she encouraged him not with platitudes about himself. She didn't say, Barak, believe in yourself. Barak, you're strong. You have all these forces around you. Maybe he was strong. He had 10,000 men with him. But she appealed to the power and the victory of God in her exhortation to Barak. The Canaanites had 900 chariots of iron. Uh, that's referenced in verse 13. Also, earlier in, the, er, earlier in the chapter, this is something, these are, these are weapons of warfare that were some of the most advanced weapons of that time. But Deborah sets her eyes toward the power of God on behalf of his people. It's graduation season, senior night tonight. Moms and dad, I remember when I went to college, um, mom, mom, when, when mom and dad took me to college, there were all sorts of instructions. I had to learn how to do a number of things uh, to fend for myself. And what I started to realize was that I needed a strength. The strength that had been behind me in, at home was no longer going to be with me. And I am so grateful that my mom, in her love for me, in all conversations and fretting about class and every, everything and just walking through life and still to this day, she pointed me not to, Stephen, believe in yourself, although she does think far too highly of me, but she, she pointed me to the faithfulness and the character of our God. Moms and dads today, your seniors, the greatest thing you could give them as you unleash them into the world is reminder after reminder of the character of their God who goes with them. Let's see another evidence of the merciful salvation that God brought to his people in this woman, J.L. So Barak says to Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go, in verse 8. And then look at what Deborah says in verse 9. Very well, I will go with you. But because of the way that you are going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali and the 10,000 men. And now look at verse 11. You, you have this kind of odd parenthetical right in the story, right? You've got Deborah and Barak in, in, in 4 through 10, and then they resume in 12 through 16. But you have this just parenthetical in verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaananim near Kadesh. Now read on to verse, uh, verse 17 to 22. You have Sisera who flees on foot after all of his forces are routed. He gets to the home of Jael. He thinks that they're friendly, that, the, that they're people who are on their side. He goes in. He says, I'm thirsty. Please give me some water. And, she's tell, and, she, and he tells her, stand in the doorway of the tent. If someone comes by, say, no, that he's not here. But she picks up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him. And while he lay fast asleep, she drove the peg through this temple into the ground. And he died. A little principle 
about reading Old Testament history. Sometimes things are descriptive and not prescriptive. Okay? You following along here? That's true. I mean, think of an example like polygamy. Polygamy, some people always say, oh, polygamy is in the Bible. Well, everywhere it's in the Bible, it's a disaster in that family, and it's never commanded by God. It's just a recording of the events that unfold. And so we see J.L. here with her action towards Sisera. See, her husband had aligned with Sisera and his forces, yet she determined to trust the God of the Israelites. She determined that faithfulness to this God would supersede this alliance her husband had made with Sisera and his forces. While we're discussing or referencing names in this story and what they mean, Barak means lightning, Jael means mountain goat. Not the best. But think about Jael and Deborah. Deborah, this woman of great wisdom and great influence, and Jael, probably this poor woman who is tasked with building the tent for her family. And see how God uses Deborah's and mountain goats in caring for his people. So whether you think of yourself as a Deborah or a Jael, know that God can and will use you for the good of his people in his church. Now as we think about this text, this is one of those that some people use to raise questions about Christianity and what, you know, okay, the people taking over Christianity... What are they trying to do politically, conquer lands? What's going on here? Are we trying to, what, 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 what is the goal? What is the mission of the church? How does this relate to today and events around us? Well, the thing to remember throughout the Old Testament is that the people of Israel are best held in comparison with the church today and not America or another nation. So we read sections like this. And these aren't to cause us to look outside these walls and shake our heads at the Canaanite culture all around us, but we look inside our hearts to make sure I'm not trying to divide my affections between the God who has redeemed me and the other little gods that my heart might be so prone to look to and to follow, whether they be money, whether they be power, whether they be relationships, accomplishments, security, uh, reputation, ultimately knowing that I have all these little gods that try to well themselves up and they root themselves in the guy I see in the mirror day by day. And so I must keep my eyes on my Redeemer, and we all must do so individually as well as a church. And further, in thinking about God's work in His people and their influence in the world and the mission of the church in this, the New Testament actually presents a picture of the church thriving amidst pluralistic cultures and even in places that are hostile towards Christianity. Not because the church is bringing political change or, or they even agree with everything happening around them. Absolutely not. But God, in building his kingdom, he uses his power to build his church that proclaims and beholds and delights in her Christ. The power of the church today is in our beholding and delighting in our Savior, not in anything else that we can do, whether it be at the ballot box or anything else in our own power, our own financial ability, or anywhere else. The great thing that we need, the great thing that the world needs around us, is our church to behold and delight ourselves in our risen Lord. I'll take that as an amen, whatever that was. 
Did everybody else hear that or was that just me? Now, if you're here with us today and you do not have new life in Christ or you're kind of checking things out, maybe you're here for the baptism service, a friend or a family member is getting baptized in a few moments. Here's what the Bible teaches about all of us before we are redeemed, before we find life in Christ. We are, or you are, in your sin in a more perilous state than Israel was in Judges 4. We were dead in our sins and trespasses against God. At our most basic foundational level, we are all idolaters. We are all worshipers of false gods. But Christ came, he gave his life as a sacrifice for us, and was resurrected in order that you might have new life in him. And so I urge you, if you're hearing this and you're hearing the claims of Christ, you're, you're hearing about the cross, you're hearing about the resurrection, you're starting to put some dots together and what it might mean for you, I urge you to investigate the life, the cross, the resurrection of Christ and what he offers to you and investigate your need for him. Brothers and sisters, look to Christ and find the only God that can satisfy your heart. A miserable state, a merciful salvation, and now a magnificent song. Chapter 5, as Deborah and Barak write a song together, and they, they, they bring this song to, to recount the events of chapter 4, and I want us to see three things about the praise of the Israelites in this, in, in this chapter and in this song. First, the praise of the Israelites was personal in recounting the Lord's work on their behalf. It was personal in recounting the Lord's work on their behalf. Second, it was corporate in being something for the community to sing together. So it was personal, recounting the work that God had done, not just out there, but for them. Corporate for the whole community. And third, it was God-centered in setting the minds of the people on the works of God and the glory of God in and through them. So read with me now chapter 5 as we begin. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased. It ceased until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, sitting on your saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at their watering places. They recite the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of his warriors in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. Wake up, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up, break out in song. Arise, O Barak. Take captive your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then the men who were left came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came to me with the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. 
Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of the heart. Why did you stay among the campfires? To hear the whistling for the flocks. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun, they risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the heights of the field. Kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. But they carried off no silver, no plunder. From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hoofs, galloping, galloping, go his mighty steeds. Curse Meres, said the angel of the Lord, curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. But most blessed of women, BJL, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women, he asked her for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A girl or two for each man. Colorful, ga- colorful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this as plunder. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace for 40 years so remember theology leads to biography now i want to lay something else before you biography in the christian ought to lead to doxology so what i believe shapes my life my life the lord's working ministering to it in it leads to praise of the lord whose hand i see at work theology leads to biography biography leads to doxology let me ask you does your biography lead to praise because you can see instances you can recount times when you had walked and you had even run away from God, when your spiritual decay had gotten you in some kind of mess, some kind of situation, some kind of trouble, some kind of feeling that you could not get out of, and the Lord in His grace ministered to you. Ultimately, for all of this, this is rooted back in our sin that was ultimately and completely atoned for in Christ's cross. But look at the state, look at, how the, look at how this is personal for the people of Israel, recounting, praising God for the works that he did in them. Look at, look at chapter 5, look at verses 6 and 7. Look back at verses 6 and 7. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased. Most likely what happened is, is that, that things were so violent, things were so hostile towards the people of Israel, that the people of Israel basically hunkered down. That they didn't travel on the main highways, they didn't travel on the main thoroughfares. They had to sneak through back windy ways at, at fear of, 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 of robbery, at fear of beatings, at fear of, of extortionary tolls being taken from them, whatever the case may be. They had found themselves in a wreck, but they 
reference this in their praise of God, skipping all the way, all the way to verse 30 of the chapter. Israel was in another wreck, facing another possibility of terror. Talking about Sisera and his men and the spoils that they took in their victories. Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A girl or two for each man. Colorful garments plundered, etc. Sisera and his forces were known to take the women of the places that they had captured and give them to his men. People of Israel were in a terrible place. Could not travel the the roads. Could not go out in some ways. And this threat upon their mothers and their daughters. And they needed rescue. And the Lord came through. And they praised God recounting this thing he had done. One of the joys in my life, but it's something I'm working in, is in my praying, praying and and praising God for the answers to prayer that he has brought. For the times that he shattered and destroyed the false gods that my heart tried to cling to, knowing that they would bring oppression to me, and knowing that he gives me himself. And brothers and sisters, I urge you, do you pray and praise God for his little graces in your life? Do you pray and praise God for his big graces in your life? Do you praise God for who he is, for his character, for his power, for his might, knowing that he is working it for you and for your good? Look at the praise that God receives and look at the hand of God upon his people and know that sin that we bring to the table that I still struggle with, that you still struggle with, this proneness to look after these false gods will ultimately one day be defeated. And the Israelites, they looked at this victory and they, they, they knew that God had won the battle for them. And they knew that he had drawn them back to himself. And so when we praise, we praise our God who has won. We praise our God who has defeated sin and death. We praise our God for the work that he has accomplished looking back at Christ and his cross, but we also praise as we look forward to the work that he, is, that he will bring to completion in us, knowing that we're in this middle state between, between salvation and between glorification, between finding Christ and between seeing and beholding Christ. He's working in us, and we praise him, and we look towards beholding Christ. And so when we look at this, when we praise him for his goodness, and we praise him for his work in us, we, 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 we see that we We have hope for all that we struggle with in this life, brothers and sisters. So my brother or sister here, not just just sin, but but all of the effects of sin and the fall and all of the effects of of, of sin and its effects in this life, whether it be dealing with, 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 with terrible physical illness or mental illness, brother or sister, your praise around the throne of Christ will be all the more personally sweet. Because you will see that Christ has delivered you from that. Whether you struggle with insecurity, anxiety, worries, griefs, pains, relational conflicts, difficult situation at home, difficult spouse, maybe you 
are the difficult spouse. Know that Christ is at work and that God is at work in you. And know that as you praise him today, that we praise looking back and we praise looking forward to the triumph of Christ as he makes all things new. In this magnificent song, the praise was personal. Secondly, the praise was corporate. Do you see how the praise of Deborah and Barak recounts how they saw the hand of God and how it was redemptive of the whole people? It was redemptive of the whole people of Israel. It wasn't just them, but God raised up Deborah not just for her sake, but for the sake of all of the people. As we dive into the Word together, as we have this responsibility in the church together, We have a responsibility because God redeems a corporate people. God redeems a body of believers. God does a work in us. He unites us together as brothers and sisters and as a family. And using and looking at this family language, look at verse 7. Village life in Israel ceased. It ceased until I, Deborah, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Deborah arose as a mother in Israel. Sisters in here. Who are you mothering in the faith? Brothers in here, who are you fathering in the faith? Who are you saying, come alongside me. Let's get into the word. Let's walk through life. Let's behold and delight in Christ together. I know that there are some in here who so desperately want to be a mother. And we pray that God would bring this about someday. But I ask that you recognize and that all of us recognize that we have an incredible stewardship and opportunity to be spiritual mothers and fathers. This isn't some kind of consolation prize. But think with me on this. A mother of children, in its most basic sense, can have a legacy that, for that child that lasts 70, 80, 90 years. A spiritual mother can lead others into the word and into your life as you mature in Christ together. And you can leave a legacy with your sons and daughters in the faith that stretches into eternity. The Lord has redeemed a people as his family, making us brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, walking through this together, recounting the praise of the Lord together. Look with me at verse, midway through verse 15. Verses 15 to 18. And think about this and think about the challenge as we think through our care for one another in the body. Start with, in the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. So everybody's storming into this battle. The tribe of Reuben, they're saying, well, let's think about it. You know, let's check the weather, let's... Let's see, okay, my calendar's looking kind of clear. Okay, maybe, maybe let's, let's, let's think about it a little bit. They stayed among the campfires, verse 16. They heard the whistling of the flocks. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead, the tribe of Gilead, stayed beyond the Jordan. They just stayed away. They said, thanks, but no thanks. You guys got this. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? The tribe of Dan, they stayed working in the ports and, and out on the ships. And then maybe my favorite, Asher. Asher remained on the coast and stayed in the coves. Asher, the tribe of Asher, they stayed at the beach. 
you know? So Dan, uh, Dan they're, 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 on the, they're on the ships. They're, they're working. They're giving themselves to the work. Asher's at the beach. Like, hey, you guys got this. You know, 900 chariots of iron, whatever. You guys got it. But look at verse 18. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the heights of the field. Brothers and sisters, lean into the body of Christ. Lean into one another for the sake of, of laying it out there, risking your lives, making things uncomfortable for the sake of pointing one another to Christ and pointing one another to his beauty and his goodness and how he ministers to us through his word in our lives and in the body. You see, the beauty of the church is that we have this corporate involvement together. That we don't have to be lone rangers. That we don't have to figure things out for ourselves. In fact, when we try to figure things out for ourselves, that's when we get in messes. But when we have the body caring for one another and walking with one another, it is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the redeeming power of God. So the, the, the praise was personal, the praise was corporate. Third and lastly, the praise of the Israelites was God-centered. Were we to just see chapter 4, we might conclude that it was the might and the wisdom of Deborah, Barak, and Jael that defeated Sisera and his forces. But chapter 5 reminds us that the victory ultimately belongs to the Lord. Let's look at a few verses showing this. Verse 4 in chapter 5. Look at this. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at verse, look at verse 11, uh, scooting down a little bit. Uh, the, the voice of the singers, of water, they recite the righteous acts of the Lord. Now look over at verses 20 and 21. Uh, 20 and 21. From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on my soul, be strong. The people of Israel laying it on the line, going to war, storming in against Sisera and his forces, and their God is bringing the rain. He's bringing the earth quaking. He's moving the stars. He is this cosmic warrior fighting on behalf of his people. The imagery the imagery in verse 31 of the sun racing across the sky. May they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength is, is, is most likely a play on the Canaanite gods who are stars and sun and moon and all this in the sky saying the glory of the Lord is greater than the Canaanite gods. God is working in our midst, in our war for his name and for the good of his people. Now, Judges 4 and 5 is a story of the glory of God stretching deep into the rebellion of man in order to rescue us from the cruelest of masters. But it's given to us today to spur us on in this day and age for the sake of the, and the renown and the worship of Christ in his church and to the ends of the earth and for our growth as his people. And so as we close, I want you to consider this thought. What if we are brought into this story as well? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. That's on page 1192 in the Pew Bibles, if you're using those. Hebrews 11. Turn with me there. Hebrews is near the end of the Bible. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. It's slightly to the left. Hebrews 11, and I want you to start with me at verse 32. And what, what's happening here is the author of Hebrews is seeking to show the sufficiency and the glory of Christ and how Christ... Uh, the, Christ fulfills all that the Old Testament, all that, all, that, all that Scripture has been anticipating. And look at verse 32 as, 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 as the author writes. And what more shall I say? 
I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak. There he is, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions. And, and it goes all the way, all the, all the way on. And, and then it says, and then it says, look down to verse 39, referencing all these Old Testament figures. And then it says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This God is so magnificent in his glory that his redeeming grace and the story of it stretches all the way back, all the way through time, and he is still working it out in his church, in his people. So we have these Old Testament saints who, who in one sense, they were faithful to the task, but the work is not yet done, and they look to the finishing of the work through the church, through Christ, his work, and ultimately his return. And so think with me on this. Um, as, as, as we see his work, as we worship him, as we, as we delight in him, as we look upon him, as we proclaim his gospel, as we proclaim the cross of Christ to those around us, look with me at verse 12 as we, as we consider all of this. Verse, or chapter 12, I'm sorry. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So, so the writer has been using all these Old Testament examples, including Barak, and he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are surrounded by this cloud of witness. We join in setting our eyes on this author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that in our Judges 4, he is working for our good, and we will praise him, and we will praise him for eternity in Judges 5, recounting his glorious deeds. Pray with me. Father, you are a good, good God. And you do a good work in your people. And you do a faithful work in your people. So give us grace simply to keep our eyes on this Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Knowing that as we wage war on the sin within us, that he is at work powerfully in us and through us. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.